Once I said goodbye to New York City. May 1st, 1941. Outside the Palace Theater in New York City on West 47th Street and Broadway, there's a throng of onlookers comprising every social strata of New York society. They've come to see one man. That man, as usual, is late. He's known to work himself to the bone and party even harder. He's had romances with some of the most famous and attractive women in the country, including Virginia Nicholson, Dolores Del Rio, and Rita Hayworth. He's been hailed as a genius, a charlatan, an incredible friend, an asshole, a hard driver, a steady worker, and a man who drank too much. For the past three years, he's been firmly planted on the tip of every American's tongue. He's Orson Welles, and we're at the premiere of his first feature film. It's a film that he's written, produced, directed, and starred in. It's a contract never before seen, and arguably never again given. It's a film that got him in hot water with both the major motion picture studios and publishing houses across the country. It's a film that would go on to be a critical success and a commercial flop. The film is Citizen Kane. All those who voiced opinions on both the man and this film would agree on one thing, that Orson Welles knew how to make an entrance. Finally, here he comes. In a country uneasily impressed, he's managed to make an indelible mark in the theater, on the radio, and now on the silver screen. Orson Welles at the time was still hailed as the boy wonder. On May 1st, 1941, he was just 25 years old. How did he get to this point? Tonight, we'll find out. If I come by plane, I can see those buildings high. And if I come by boat, I can really heave a sigh. And if I come by plane, Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 79. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we'll examine Orson Welles' career mainly between the years 1937 and 1941. We'll focus more on radio than anything else, but we'll also look back at his years prior to 1937 and touch on his stage and screen work as well. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Welcome to the show. You can find this show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and just about everywhere else you might get your podcast. You can also go to thewallbreakers.com for show notes, articles, and the ability to download each episode as an MP3. Tonight's opening theme is New York City Blues by Peggy Lee. It's a song that holds true to all those who've been to New York, and it's a song that's close to this Brooklyn boy's heart. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, especially on iTunes, do me a favor. Just scroll down and give me a quick rating and review. It'll really help people discover this show, and hey, if you like my voice, I'd appreciate that very much. And just a reminder that coming May 15th, a man named Marlowe will premiere in the same feed that you get this show. It'll be a six-part, 30-minute audio drama miniseries with the central character being Raymond Chandler's famous private detective, Philip Marlowe. It'll predate The Big Sleep, and we'll get into how and why Marlowe became the Marlowe we've known him to become. You can also support this show and unlock juicy bonus content and other extras at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And to keep easily abreast with the show, you can join our Wallbreakers Facebook group or follow the show on Twitter, 
and on Instagram. My father lived in Peking part of every year for quite a while, and I used to go and stay with him. I used to speak a little Mandarin, and China was as part of my home memories, as much as the Middle West. It's kind of the forbidden city and grand tour of Illinois. He was born George Orson Wells on May 6, 1915 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the son of Richard and Beatrice Ives Wells. His father was an eccentric, an inventor of a bicycle lamp that made the family a fortune, and an alcoholic who later stopped working altogether. He had one brother, Richard III, who had to be institutionalized because of learning difficulties. Richard and Beatrice's marriage was a difficult one. Orson's parents separated when he was four. His mother was a pianist who, when the family moved to Illinois in 1919, played at the Art Institute of Chicago to help support her son. She taught him he enjoyed playing music, but just four days after Wells' ninth birthday, on May 10th, 1924, Beatrice died of hepatitis. After his mother's death, Wells moved around frequently, first to Wyoming, New York, where he spent his summers at a private art colony established by Lydia Avery Coonley Ward. Later, his father took him along on his world travels, eventually settling in a hotel in Grand Detour, Illinois. Wells spoke about his father during an interview with Dick Cavett in the early 1970s. My father bought a country hotel in a town with a population of 150 people called Grand Detour, Illinois. And he had this hotel because he had the kind of inverted snobbism that made it impossible for him to have a country house. So he had a country hotel and he didn't allow any paying guests. They had to be just his friends. And anybody came hoping for a room, there was no highway past it or anything. They didn't have a chance of a bed. There was always said, we're full up. They could see it was empty, you know. <laughs> and he had great cooks and had his own bakehouse, his own smokehouse, and lived this great kind of 1880 life, of, you know, and there was no car in town. We rode with a horse and buggy. It was like being raised 70 years ago instead of my real chair. It was a wonderful experience. And he spent two months every year at Grand Detour running this hotel. And the servants were all old show business people. My father was mad about show, old, but cheap show business people. There was a fellow called Rattlesnake Oil Emery, who had been a medicine showman. And there was a lady who could do the call of birds by whistling. It was all made up of these kind of people who just lived there and ran this hotel and refused anybody a room in it until my father would come and stay. And it burnt down with him in it. He escaped coming out of the flames while all his jade collection from China burned up and everything else. He's a very old man because he's quite old when I was born. He emerged from the flames in a dressing gown, a real nightshirt, you know, the comic nightshirt, with a parrot in a cage and a signed photograph of Trixie Ferganza under his arm. Who is Trixie Ferganza? Trixie Ferganza was from the era of flesh-colored tights. And those were his treasures? Well, that was what he brought out of the fire. He was an extraordinary sort of man. In 1926, at the age of 11, he entered the Todd Seminary School for Boys, an expensive independent school in Woodstock, Illinois. It proved to be an invaluable experience. 
It was there that Wells developed social skills, furthered his education and sense of culture, and got his first exposure to the theater and radio. While a student at the Todd Seminary, Wells wrote and starred in an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. It was his first major radio credit. When his father died in December of 1930, he left Wells in charge of his own future. When he graduated from Todd in 1931, rather than attend Harvard, he chose to travel. I've always heard, of, I have this image of you in Ireland, coming over a hill with a horse and a cart, as it's donkey been reported. Donkey and cart. A donkey? It's a true. donkey and cart. Were you a forerunner of the hippie movement in some sense? Or... Well, I wish I could pretend to have been that. I think I was just a, a latter-day romantic, you know, rather than a forerunner of the hippie movement, because uh, really it's a kind of ridiculous romantic thing to do, to go and buy a donkey and cart and travel around Ireland, sleep under the cart. I was trying to be a painter, you know. I only wanted to be a painter. You were in your teens then, weren't you? Yes, I was 15. And I had got a scholarship to Harvard which I didn't want. And in order to stay out of university, which struck me as the most terrible fate that could possibly happen to anybody, I really ran away with a few hundred dollars that was found in the box after my father died and went to Ireland. I bought a donkey and cart in Galway and started out. And at night I slept under the cart. I had the paints in the cart. I painted every day that it wasn't raining, which means I didn't do much painting. <laughs> and, uh, I ended up with no paintings at all because the Irish, in those days anyway, particularly in the West, would take no money for food or anything from somebody like that traveling around. But they wanted a painting. So these uh, thatched cottages of Connemara are absolutely full of terrible Wells paintings. Then I came to Dublin. I was broke, had no money at all, and the only thing to do was go back and go to Harvard. So I went to the Gate Theater, which was the great theater of Dublin. And I told them I was a famous star from New York and that it would amuse me for a few weeks to play some leading parts in that theater. <laughs> no. I'd never been on the stage. I had no idea what it was like to be on the stage. And I never would have been able to tell such a lie if I'd had any ambition to be on the stage or any idea. It was just the kind of lie you could tell because what can they do to you? You know, you go on the stage where they think I gotta kill you. All they do is fire you, it's a way to eat. So they gave me a star part. I began as a star. <laughs> and I've uh, been working my way down slowly ever since. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't know why more people don't think of that. Yes. It's much easier. Wells was 16 at the time. Shortly before his 18th birthday in the spring of 1933, Orson Welles booked second-class passage on a tramp steamer, the Exermin, bound for Morocco. While on board, he worked on an introduction for a book he was writing called Everybody Shakespeare. It was to be published by his Todd Seminary School mentor, Roger Hill, for their school's press. Everybody Shakespeare was meant to be an educational device to help children understand the bard. Wells also illustrated many of the passages. He struggled with his own feelings in writing the book, he was deeply worried that he had no right to assume Shakespeare meant one verse to be angry, another to cause someone to smile. He expressed these fears in a letter to Roger Hill, telling his mentor he wished that he was here to see the many characters on the steamer, and included a bit of poetry about his life on the high seas. Days now numberless, it seems to me. 
we've lulled and wallowed in a lusty sea. Time is a thing that used to be. The order and ascent of days is nothing now. A march-blown ocean mauls our plunging prow. An acreage, hysterical for us to plow. Crash in the galley. Crashes are constant now. Shiver the empty exurment from screw to prow. Time is a thing that used to be. The order and ascent of days is nothing now. Everybody Shakespeare would remain in print for decades. In 1933, Roger and Hortense Hill invited Wells to a party in Chicago, where Wells met famous playwright and author Thornton Wilder. Wilder arranged for him to meet writer and literary critic Alexander Wolcott in New York. It was a meeting that forever changed the course of Wells' life. Alec Wolcott got so angry with me once at a party. He introduced me because he was the one who kind of started me again in show business, and he presented me as somebody at a party that should be interesting. And there I was, 19 years old. There wasn't anything interesting to say about me. I hadn't done anything in America. He says, well, Orson was born in Peking. And I said, no. And a look of hatred came over Alex's face when I had told him it was Kenosha, Wisconsin, instead of Peking, because it was the only interesting thing he could think of to say about In 1933, actress, writer, producer, and theater owner Catherine Cornell was assembling a stock theater company called the Cornell McClintic Corporation with her husband, director Guthrie McClintic. She was a friend of Alexander Wolcott's, who had once dubbed her the first lady of the theater. Wolcott was aware of a recent pre-code film adaptation of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night that Wells shot at the Todd Seminary School. At a social gathering of New York's cultural elite, Wolcott introduced Wells and Cornell to each other. Guthrie McClintock immediately put Wells under contract and cast him in three plays, Romeo and Juliet, Candida, and the company's first production, an adaptation of Rudolph Bezier's The Barretts of Wimple Street. The play was based on the romance between English poets Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett and her father's unwillingness to allow them to marry. This play gave Catherine Cornell her signature role. A couple of years later, it gave Orson Welles a signature on-the-air flub. I had a show. I was the voice of cornstarch. Oh, you're putting me on now. I kid you not, and it was one of my first really good jobs because it was five days a week, 75 bucks a time. All I had to come in was read a poem while the singing strings of somebody or other played, and I'd read this thing. (laughs) And I had to write a little thing about the poem before I would read it. It was a 15-minute spot for the housewife at noon. And I had been up about three nights without being to sleep for overwork, as you may imagine. Came in one day, and it was a poem they picked for me by Robert Browning, and I couldn't understand what it was about. And I didn't know what to say about it. And I remembered a line from a play that I'd been in, The Barretts of Wimpole Street with Cornell, when she says to Browning, who was a character in the play, what does this poem mean? And he says, kind of a funny line that he really said in life, when this was written, only God and Robert Browning know what it meant, now only God does. So I thought, I'll say this, the ladies will enjoy it, so on singing strings. And all the sponsors, and the smaller a show was, the more sponsors would be in a, in a, of course. In a room, you know, <laughs> were gathered, and I said, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. 
Ah, this poem puts me in mind of what the author said originally, that when this was written, only Brob and Grobbit breeding. When Grot was written, only Grobbit breeding. Music continued. When Grob and Gribbit... When God was written, only Brob and Britt and Gritty. <laughs> and then I saw all of these faces, purple and black, staring at me. And I just put down the script, walked out of the studio, and never saw them again. <laughs> never saw <laughs> Wells would tour with the stock company for 36 weeks, beginning November of 1933. In that time, he'd be part of over 200 live productions. Shortly thereafter, in 1934, he got his first job in New York on perhaps the most outstanding show in educational radio, the Columbia Broadcasting System's American School of the Air. It was broadcast each weekday afternoon at 2.30 Eastern Standard Time. The show was offered as a teaching supplement, the equivalent to a half-hour course. Though Wells was working anonymously, the increased cachet helped him stage a summer drama festival with the Todd School in Woodstock, Illinois, which featured stage luminaries from both Dublin and New York. It was there that Wells produced an eight-minute short entitled The Hearts of Age, his version of a surrealist film. That autumn and winter, Wells was married to Chicago socialite and actress Virginia Nicholson, and he appeared as Tybalt in a revised production of Cornell's Romeo and Juliet at the Martin Beck Theater on 45th Street near Times Square. His performance brought him to the attention of producer John Houseman, who cast Wells in his production of Archibald MacLeish's Panic. MacLeish saw Wells' performance and recommended him to audition for CBS's March of Time radio stock company. Wells debuted on the news documentary show in March of 1935. By the spring, he was appearing regularly. Today has published the most comprehensive treatise on Americanisms to date the book whose previous editions were read in England, translated into German. H.L. Mencken's 769-page The American Language. On the future of the American language, says Mr. Mencken. The influence of 125 million people, practically all headed in one direction, is too great to be resisted by the minority in England. Wherever the King's English comes into competition with the President's American... American tends to prevail. The international language of the future may look like English, but it will sound like American. For the remainder of 1935 and into 1936, Wells worked exclusively on radio for CBS, appearing in productions of The March of Time, America's Hour, Musical Reveries, and on July 18, 1936, the debut episode of an experimental dramatic anthology program that would help shape radio for years to come, known as the Columbia Workshop. The Columbia Workshop, under the direction of Irving Reese. Ladies and gentlemen, Columbia takes pride in inaugurating tonight a new series of programs dedicated to you and to the magic of radio, the Columbia Workshop. The Columbia Workshop believes in radio in its past accomplishments, and in its promise for the future. Radio has reduced the area of the world to a split second of time for the transmission of human thought and feeling through man's literature, his music, his spoken word. 
In the five centuries that bridged the years since Gutenberg invented movable type and gave the world the store of man's knowledge through the printed word, no discovery has promised greater potentialities for shaping the world's culture than the slim, swift... The program's the creator and director, Irving Reese, immediately recognized Wells' talent. Wells began to take note of the ways in which Reese was willing to take risks in order to push the medium of radio forward. Simultaneously, it was through the march of time and the Columbia Workshop that Wells began to assemble what would come to be known as the Mercury Theater. It just so happened that as part of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal Emergency Relief Appropriation Act of 1935, a Works Progress Administration was established. A program was put together to fund live artistic performances and entertainment avenues in the United States. One of the original ventures was the Federal Theater Project. That year, in 1935, John Houseman was directing an African-American theater unit in Harlem. He invited the 20-year-old Wells to be part of the project. Their first co-production was an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth with an entirely African-American cast. Wells changed the setting to a mythical island with Haitian voodoo fulfilling the role of Scottish witchcraft. The play opened on April 14, 1936 at the Lafayette Theater in Harlem and received incredible Reviews. I'm the rip. be the tongue that tells me so. <laughs> and be these juggling fiends no more believe. <laughs> Hell King. Hell King. Behold, West and the usurper's cursed head. The time is free! All hail Malcolm! Please! The charm wound up! By that autumn, Wells was jet-setting back and forth from Chicago to New York, to appear for the Mutual Broadcasting System's Wonder Show, broadcast live from the Chicago Civic Opera House. He was making inroads into other major American cities and appearing on multiple networks. The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York, from that to the war, from 1937 38, really, through the war. It was mm. only seven years. Mm -hmm. The golden age of radio. At this time, we were trying to find out how to do it. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were learning skills. We were sharpening and honing our abilities. If you saw, good heavens, predating the War of the Worlds by a, a year, when Irving Reese did The Fall of the City in 37, spring of 37, The Fall of the City by Archibald McLeish, a first play with one of America's outstanding poets, a man who was so impressed by the medium of radio that he submitted to Irving Reese in the Columbia Workshop a verse play for radio. And who directed that? Irving Reese with all of the directorial staff of CBS assisting him. Yeah, that was a mammoth Earl production. Earl McGill, Brewster Morgan, myself, Bill Spear, all assisting. Orson Welles' is narrator, Burgess Meredith as chief orator. Names that we conjure with now, 
we're just kids then. Yeah, Orson Welles was probably about 22, 23, 23 at the time. Uh, 22 and 37. He was 23 at the time of the other show. And then you uh, use a big mammoth studio or you rented a, a National Guard Hall or something to get special uh, 7th effects. 7th Regiment Armory on Park Avenue. Yeah. So that was a remote. Uh, it was done live, the whole show. Yeah, it was done live, but it was remote from the armory. And that was to get what, the effect of the crowd or something. Uh, what Irving wanted to get was an outdoor perspective, dead air, outdoor, no reverb. He put his cast in this vast armory. Now, I, my responsibility was crowd direction. We had a crowd of 150 people. The crowd was a character in the play as the Greeks wrote for the chorus. Mm -hmm. They had no words, but they had reactions. And I was the cheerleader for the crowd. <laughs> but to limit that, to control a small orchestra, but with very piercing primitive instruments, I mean, with that woodwinds and tambours and so on, to control that, to control the narrator, Wells worked in an isolation booth, which were quite new in those days. All of this to give an impression of great space without reverberation. Because Irving was a genius at this kind of conception. Unheard of in those days. Unheard of today. What television producer gives a damn about sound? They pump all this $250,000 production through a four-inch speaker. On Sunday, April 11th, 1937, at 7 p.m. on CBS, as producer-director William N. Robeson just noted, the Columbia Workshop broadcast a verse play written especially for radio by Archibald MacLeish, entitled The Fall of the City. It was an allegory on the rise of fascism, the first ever like it written for radio. Remember, this was April of 1937. The Nazi hate machine was on the rise. The inevitability of war had begun to spread throughout the world like a dark and chilling energy. The broadcast took place at the massive 7th Regiment Armory on 67th Street and Park Avenue in New York. It wasn't only the crowd of 150 extras at the armory that functioned as the frightened chorus. The space created a sonic atmosphere that bellowed out of the listening public's radio receivers and made the listening spaces they were in feel as though they were part of the action. As the play begins, a thoroughly frightened populace awaits for the arrival of a conqueror. The crowd buzzes about with nervous excitement and anticipation. It sounded unlike anything that had been broadcast before. Both McLeish and program director Irving Reese entrusted one man to lead the narration. That man was the 22-year-old Orson Welles. They're very high. The tomb is off to the right somewhere. We can't see for the great crowd. Close to us here are the cabinet ministers. They stand on a raised platform with awnings. The farmer's wives are squatting on the stones. Their children have fallen asleep on their shoulders. The heat is harsh. The light dazzles like metal. It dazes the air as the clang of a gong does. It is one minute to twelve now. There is still no sign. They are still waiting. No one doubts that she will come. No one doubts that she will speak, too. Three times she has not spoken. Now it is twelve. Now they are rising. Now the whole plaza is rising. Fathers are lifting their small children. The plumed fans on the platform are motionless. There is no sound but the shuffle of shoe leather. Now even the shoes are still... We can hear the hawks. It is as quiet as that now. It is strange to see such throngs so silent. Nothing yet. Nothing has happened. Wait. There's a stir here to the right of us. They're turning their heads. The crowd turns. The cabinet ministers lean from their balcony. There's no sound, only the turning. First the waters rose with no wind. Listen. That is she. She's speaking. 
Then the stones of the temple kindled without flame or tinder of maize leaves. Facing her beyond us, a crowd sees her. Then there were cries in the night haze, words in a once heard tongue, the air rustling above us as at dawn with herons. Now it is I who must bring fear, I who am four days dead, the tears still unshed for me, all of them. I for whom a child still calls at nightfall. Death is young in me to fear. My dress is kept still in the press in my bedchamber. No one has broken the dish of the dead woman. Nevertheless, I must speak painfully. I am to stand here in the sun and speak. The city of masterless men will take a master. There will be shouting men, blood after. <laughs> do not ask what it means. I do not know. Only sorrow and no hope for it. She is gone. No, they are still looking. It is hard to return from the time past. I have come in the dream we must learn to dream where the crumbling of time like the ash from a burnt string has stopped for me. For you, the thread still burns. You take the feathery ash upon your fingers. You bring yourselves from the time past as it pleases you. It is hard to return to the old nearness. Harder to go again. She's gone. We know because the crowd is closing. All we can see is the crowd closing. We hear the releasing of held breath, the weight shifting, the lifting of shoe leather. The stillness is broken as surface of water is broken, the sound circling from in outward. Small wonder they feel fear. Before the murders of the famous kings, before imperial cities burned and fell, the dead were said to show themselves and speak. When dead men came, disaster came. Presentiments that let the living on their beds sleep on woke dead men out of death and gave them voices. Masterless men, when shall it be? Masterless men will take As a As head of CBS, William S. Paley noted, the play was a sensation which helped point the way to what radio could achieve. It was selected by the New York Times as one of the outstanding broadcasts of 1937. Time Magazine noted that it proved to most listeners that the radio, which conveys only sound, is science's gift to poetry and poetic drama. Thanks to the character of his voice and the power of his tone, the fall of the city made Orson Welles an overnight star and gave him the opportunity of a lifetime. Radio would never again be the same. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away! no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 
world chimes its midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. So long as these problems are not solved, so long as ignorance and poverty remain on earth, these words cannot be useless. By late spring in 1937, the WPA's Federal Theater Project was under intense scrutiny for staging what some felt to be too many left-leaning labor plays. In Washington, there were rumblings that funds would be cut. At the same time, Orson Welles and John Houseman were rehearsing a production of The Cradle Will Rock, a play written by Mark Blitzstein with deep anti-capitalist themes. The play took place in Steeltown, USA, Followed the efforts of Larry Foreman to unionize the town's workers and combat the wicked, greedy businessman, Mr. Mister, who controls the town's factory, press, church, and social organizations. Less than three weeks before the play was set to be opened on June 23rd, the WPA temporarily shut down the project. Wells flew to Washington to argue his case. He failed. Next, he threatened to open the play himself. The government's response was severe. A dozen uniformed guards took over the building in force. Project members arriving to sign in found their theater sealed in dark. The guards stood in front of the house and at the box office. They also hovered in the alley outside the dressing rooms with orders to see that no government property was used or removed. On June 23rd, John Houseman cleverly discovered an out. As U.S. citizens, the actors were free to enter whatever theater they wished as audience members and rise from their seats on cue and speak their lines in the aisles, so long as they were not on stage. Three hours before the scheduled 8 p.m. curtain time, the Venice Theater on Park Row, not far from City Hall, was selected. The entire throng of audience, press, and actors moved across town. The Cradle Will Rock played in the aisles. Blitzstein played his music from a rinky-tink piano that Hausman secured. It was a rousing success. But the next day, Everyone was fired. They had, however, made front-page headlines. A few days later, Wells and Houseman were talking. Wells said, why the hell don't we start our own theater? They just needed an on-the-air guinea pig to take the risk. These words set forth the soul and spirit of one of the world's great literary masterpieces, Les Miserables. Out of the depths of his pity for suffering mankind, Victor Hugo drew a compelling story one that will live so long as bewildered humanity shall continue to grope toward the light. Tonight, WOR and the Mutual Network bring you the first of seven broadcasts based on this great novel. Each episode will depict some vital development in the epic of Jean Valjean. Orson Welles, author, director, and actor, has assembled a notable cast and offers an interpretation created specifically for radio presentations. Mr. Wells will play the role of Jean Valjean. And those sections of the book itself, which in running narrative bind together the dramatic episodes, will also be read by him. Les Miserables begin. On Friday, July 23rd, 1937 at 10 p.m., on the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship station, WOR, in New York, a seven-part adaptation 
of Victor Hugo's famed novel, Les Miserables, debuted. It was written by, directed by, and starred Orson Welles. The production also marked the radio debut of the Mercury Theater troupe. Les Miserables co-starred Martin Gable as Javert, Alice Frost as Fantine, Virginia Nicholson Wells as the adult Cosette, and featured soon-to-be radio mainstays like Ray Collins, Agnes Moorhead, Everett Sloan, Betty Gard, Hiram Sherman, Frank Reddick, and Richard Widmark. It was considered at the time to be one of the finest dramatic anthologies ever produced. An hour before sundown, on the evening of a day in the beginning of October, 1815, a man traveling on foot was seen entering the little town of D. Nobody knew him. He looked ragged and mean. He must have come far that day, for he looked weary. The traveler went first to the mayor's office with his passport, and then turned his steps toward the inn. A man who wants food and a bed. One moment, monsieur. Good evening. Is dinner ready? Monsieur, I'm sorry. I cannot receive you. Are you afraid I won't pay you? I have money. I'll pay in advance. I have no room. Well, then, put me in the stable. I'll pay you. I'm sorry. Well, the attic or a corner of the kitchen... I must have lodging. We'll see after dinner. I can't give you dinner. But I'm hungry. I've been walking since sunrise. Twelve leagues. I'm hungry. Get out. What do you mean? You heard me. Get out. But I... I don't understand. Monsieur, I suspected something when I saw you go into the mayor's office. So I sent my boy across to find out. Monsieur, shall I tell you your name? Oh. So you know. The traveler looked at the innkeeper, bowed his head, picked up his knapsack and went off down the street. If he had turned, he would have seen the innkeeper in his doorway, pointing him out as he went to the guests of the inn and to the passers-by. Night came on. It had begun to rain. He passed the prison. Mr. Turnkey! Mr. Turnkey! Well, what is it? Mr. Turnkey, your pardon. Will you let me stay here tonight? This is a jail, not a tavern. Get yourself arrested. The traveler did not know the streets. He walked at random. He came to the prefecture and then to the seminary. As he passed the cathedral square, he shook his fist at the church. Then he stopped at a stone bench in the bishop's street and lay down there, hoping for sleep. It catapulted Wells to even further start him, cementing him as someone who could write, produce, direct, and act, a very rare quadruple threat in the radio industry. The humanizing way in which he plays Jean Valjean emphasized both the tones of the story and 
the ability of the actor. It increased the cachet of the mutual broadcasting system and soon landed Wells another role of a lifetime. <laughs> the shadow knows. <laughs> Blue Cold presents The Shadow, the man of mystery who strikes terror in the very hearts of sharpsters, lawbreakers, and criminals. Today, the Temple Bells of Liban. On Sunday, September 26, 1937, at 5.30 p.m., three weeks after the broadcast of the final chapter of Les Miserables from WOR, Orson Welles debuted as a new crime-fighting hero the shadow on the same network. Opposite Wells, as his lovely companion Margot Lane, was Agnes Moorhead. In your early days of your career, you were on stage and, and radio, and you were quite involved theatrically with Orson Welles, weren't you? Yes. You were a member of the Mercury Theater Group? I was one of the founders of the Mercury Group. Joe Cotman, Orson Welles, mm -hmm. and I founded the Mercury Theater. The three of you? Yes. And how long was the Mercury Theater on Broadway? Well, we started in 1934 and 1935, and around about 1938, 1937, 1938, Orson left Broadway and came out to the coast. The bells, shadow, the bells of Niba, they will reveal you. Your third mistake, Sadi, and your last. <laughs> no, it is your mistake and your last. This is the end of your career as the Shadow. The show named The Shadow had been on the air since 1930, but until this time, the mystery man served only as a narrator of anthology crime stories adapted from the pages of popular magazines, like Street and Smith. In 1937, the sponsor Blue Cole agreed to allow The Shadow to become the program's main hero for one season as a test. He was Lamont Cranston, wealthy man about town. As The Shadow, he had the ability to cloak himself with invisibility and to read men's minds. They were tools of mesmer, learned through years of study in the Orient and in India. Orson Welles was paid $185 per week. By this time, he was appearing on every network and was so busy with theater projects, he had it written into his contracts that he required no rehearsal. He often didn't know how he'd get out of the weekly jam until he read it on the air. The thing would be most apropos would be The Shadow, which you did on radio. Yeah. The Shadow, remember that? One of the series. Now, in those days, it was interesting. Uh, the shows were live on radio, most of them. Some of them were transcribed. Uh, no, no, network shows had to be live but they by were... law. Right. The only transcribed right. shows were syndicated shows and local ones. And you would play like maybe five, six, or seven different shows like in New York City, playing different characters on each one, right? Yes, and I found out that you can hire an ambulance in New York without being sick. No, so, I didn't know that. So I used to go from CBS to NBC and back again in an ambulance so I could get through the traffic in order to get from one soap opera to another, you know? 
And I wouldn't know what I was going to play. They'd hold an elevator open for me. I'd come in. I'd be, they'd say, Studio 3. I'd go into Studio 3. They'd hand home. me a piece of paper. I'd say, what is it? And they'd say, 70-year-old Chinaman. And we're on the air. I didn't know how it turned out, what happened, anything. I was a 70-year-old Chinaman. Just go right see, we're it. talking about first readings. That's radio reading. Well, and, of course, with radio actors like myself, that first reading is the best one. Well, Margot, we'll make this a large evening, a couple of hours at the Club Caliph. Does that intrigue you? Oh, lovely, but not too late. I have an appointment at 10 in the morning at the Women's Club. They're trying to get some action on this terrible narcotic situation. Oh, yes, I read about that. Oh, stuff's being peddled all over town. They found school children using it, society women. Why, it's already caused a half dozen suicides. Yes, I know. It's terrible stuff. Oh, it needs the shadow to get at the bottom of it. Yes, I know, dear. But the results were dramatic. Out. This particular excerpt is from the October 24th, 1937 episode, The Temple Bells of Nibai. In this episode, the shadow meets an Indian woman capable of using the same powers. She knows his identity. She is the niece of the man who trained him, now turned to the dark side. You know, there's the place just there. Cup Caleb, driver. Yes, sir. Lamont, you are going to do something about it. You've started already. Perhaps. A blizzard of fan mail came into the Mutual Broadcasting System's WOR offices. Shadow fan clubs sprang up across the country. Wells would occasionally appear at stores and social functions, donning a black cape, hat, and mask for special occasions. From the series premiere until March 20, 1938, Wells and Agnes Moorhead performed to rave reviews. And now, ladies and gentlemen, that interesting message we promised you. The part of Lamont Cranston and the Shadow has been played by one of the most distinguished figures in the theater today. Mr. Orson Welles, famous for his production of Shakespeare in Modern Dress, a director of the Mercury Theater, producer of Broadway hits like Julius Caesar and The Shoemaker's Holiday. Mr. Welles, still a very young man, is making for himself a unique place in the field of dramatic art. We have been indeed fortunate in having Mr. Welles on our shadow programs. Now I know all of you would like to hear a few words from Mr. Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Words can hardly express my great enjoyment in doing this program for you. And now, before I leave you, I want to thank our sponsors, Blue Coal, for giving me the opportunity of doing this show. I want to thank our cast for the wonderful work they've done throughout our entire season. And above all, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your loyalty. We all hope you've enjoyed listening to the shows as much as we have playing them. You know, in the theater, we can see our audience. We're able to tell how well we're received by the applause we get. But unfortunately, we have no way of knowing how much you've enjoyed us over the air. Wait, Orson. May I make a suggestion? I certainly, Agnes Moorhead, or should I say Margot Lane. <laughs> there is a way. If you've enjoyed this program and would like to let Mr. Wells and all of us know about it, simply phone your nearest blue coal dealer and tell him so tomorrow morning. Tell him how much you've enjoyed the adventures of the shadow. A very fine idea, Agnes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, good night and goodbye. Thank you, Mr. Wells. And let's all take Agnes Moorhead's suggestion and give the cast the volume of applause they deserve. Phone your nearest blue coal dealer tomorrow morning. Tell him how much you've enjoyed the adventure. After March 20th, Orson Wells recorded new shadow broadcasts for syndication, but he would be heading back to CBS for a new project and taking the Mercury Theater with him.
Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. July 8th, 1938. We're at Rubin's Restaurant on 59th Street in Midtown Manhattan. Sitting at a table near us are Orson Welles and John Houseman. They've been here for 17 hours, working tirelessly on a script. In late June, Orson Welles was approached by CBS. He was offered a one-hour network-sustained time slot on Mondays at 9 p.m. William S. Paley's concept? A Mercury Theater of the Air for a nine-week trial run. Unlike Welles and Houseman's theater productions, which had several weeks of rehearsal, this show would begin in just two on July 11th. That on-air deadline is now just three days away. There's an additional catch. Their work together in the theater has to continue without let-up. John Houseman is nervous. He's never done anything on radio. Orson Welles is reassuring him. Welles will be the director, narrator, and the star. The theater troupe will be heard in supporting roles. Bernard Herman is musical director, and Davidson Taylor is supervisor. The title of this program will be First Person Singular, because, as Wells told Radio Guide, the I is more important in radio than in any other creative medium. As narrator, he'll lead the audience straight into the story, where they will experience it almost as participants. A take on Bram Stoker's Dracula has been selected for the first episode. Wells started the adaptation process by marking key passages in the book for inclusion. Now, after three quarters of a day of straight writing, filled with arguments, torn up paper, half-eaten sandwiches, cigarette butts, coffee grinds, and an empty whiskey bottle. The two men are almost done. The listening audience will never know just how hectic and down to the wire this production will consistently be. The Columbia Network takes pride in presenting Orson Welles in the first production of a unique new summer series by the Mercury Theater on the Air. In a single year, the first in the life of the Mercury Theater, Orson Welles has come to be the most famous name of our time in American drama. 
says Collier's Magazine, 23-year-old Orson Welles threw a bombshell into Broadway. Robert Benchley writes in The New Yorker, The production of the Mercury is, I should say, just about perfect. Time Magazine declares, The brightest moon that has risen over Broadway in years. Welles should feel at home in the sky, for the sky is the only limit which his ambitions recognize. And finally, the United Press remarks, Meteoric rise of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater continues unabated. With four hit shows in its first year, the Mercury might well close its door on a season unparalleled in Broadway history. But Mr. Wells has long been working on a project for a greater audience, the Broadways of the entire United States. The Columbia Network is proud to give Orson Wells the opportunity to bring to the air those same qualities of vitality and imagination that have made him the most talked-of theatrical director in America today. And it is this project which Columbia brings you this summer. The first time in its history that radio has ever extended such an invitation to an entire theatrical institution. But here is Orson Welles himself to tell you about it. The director of the Mercury Theater, the star and producer of these programs, Orson Welles. Good evening. We're starting off tonight with the best story of its kind ever written. You will find it in every representative library of classic English narratives. It's Bram Stoker's Dracula. The next time I speak to you, I'm Dr. Arthur Seward. George Goulouris plays Jonathan Harker, and Martin Gable plays Dr. Van Helsing. It's Dr. Seward who tells the story, and so for the moment, goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you in Transylvania. The Mercury Theater on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula... In his own version of Wells and Houseman had total creative control. The premiere set the tone. Wells played Dracula with a cutting effect. The press was solid in its praise of him, the production, and the supporting cast of Martin Gable, Ray Collins, Agnes Moorhead, and other members of the Mercury Troupe. Over the next nine weeks, listeners heard adaptations of classics like Treasure Island, A Tale of Two Cities, Abraham Lincoln, The 39 Steps, The Man Who Was Thursday, The Affairs of Anatole, and The Count of Monte Cristo for which Wells simulated the sound of a dungeon by having the two actors record their scene from the floor of the CBS restroom, placing two dynamic microphones against the bases of the toilet seat in order to achieve realistic subterranean reverberations. Each time the toilet was flushed, it gave the appearance of waves breaking against nearby rocks. Get on board. Keep up there! I sat in the stern sheets with a guard on each side of me in the little boat. There, there! King's business! Lower the chain! The chain that closes the mouth of the port at night is lowered. Soon we were outside the harbor. My first feeling was one of joy at breathing the fine sea air again. Then of sadness as I saw the lights of La Reserve away to the left of me and heard the sound of voices and music coming through the open windows. This Monday night concludes the summer broadcast, which have introduced the Mercury Theater as the first complete theatrical producing company in radio. 
But the tremendous response which their efforts have drawn from all parts of the country has ensured their continuance with us through the coming months. The Columbia Broadcasting System is therefore proud to announce a new series of weekly productions by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air beginning next Sunday evening, September the 11th, from 8 to 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Saving Time. The years of connections and experience had led Orson Welles to this point. He learned in Dublin how to sell himself into a starring role. He learned from his mentor, Roger Hill, how to illustrate a story both literally and figuratively for an eager audience. He learned from Catherine Cornell the subtle art of leading a performance troupe. He learned from Irving Reese how to push sound production and how to treat radio drama as present tense theater. William S. Paley enjoyed the productions enough that after September 5, 1938, he renewed the series under a new name, the Mercury Theater of the Air, and moved the show to the biggest primetime slot in radio, Sundays at 8 p.m., opposite of NBC's The Chase and Sanborn Hour, setting the stage for a series of events which would follow that would forever alter the course of American radio drama. Well, I remember that along with three or four other members of the cast who had parts in the first act, going into the newsroom and seeing all the boards lit up, nobody was there, the girls had all gone home, and we picked up the phones. And it was shocking to hear what they said to us and how they yelled at us and cursed at us. Our argument was, well, why don't you tune in some others? You find out that this is not all over America, this is not all over New York. There's no uh, monsters outside from Mars, for God's sake. Wait till the second half of the show. And then finally someone got in touch with Paley and said, my God, this studio is going crazy. The whole uh, city of New York is up in arms and Harlem people were jumping out of windows. And that's the thing that, you know, I felt badly about. And cars, for some reason, along the Pulaski Skyway in Jersey City, Cars were going 75 miles an hour in traffic. It was on one of the phones at CBS when Orson Welles had his War of the Worlds thing and everybody was at a phone because it was frantic. So believable. They were frightened, really frightened people were calling. But it certainly caused a lot of new directions in the radio business. They had to be informed if there was any even remote possibility of anybody getting frightened that this was a radio broadcast and was not real, you know. I think that when we got back to the theater and he saw his wife was in the show and all of his actors, he was a little bit leery about what was going to happen. Houseman, his partner, said it was a Halloween trick. Well, it wasn't a Halloween trick. It was done in dead seriousness. It wasn't meant as a trick at all. Because of the situation in Europe, that there was a very nervous thing. During the broadcast, I saw a bunch of policemen in the foyer outside of the door to the studio. I thought, I don't think he's being scared into this. I think he's worried that there's going to be an uprising. Well, there wasn't. There were people that got into their cars and drove, but I don't know where they were going to drive. Where were you going to drive to get away from the Martians? 
Monday, October 24th, 1938. We're sitting next to Howard Koch as he drives back to New York through New Jersey after visiting his parents on his day off. Who is Howard Koch? Well, early in the autumn season of the Mercury Theater on the Air, the adaptation process got to be too much for John Houseman. He was forced to condense large Victorian novels into 60-minute radio dramas in three working days each week. The first Sunday evening adaptation was Julius Caesar on September 11th. That was followed by Jane Eyre, Sherlock Holmes, and Oliver Twist. Around this time, Howard Koch walked into Houseman's office and asked him for a writing job. Houseman hired him on the spot for $75 a week, grateful to turn the script writing duties over. Koch's first script was an adaptation of Hell on Ice, which aired on October 9th. It was from a book by Edward Ellsberg about the disastrous attempt by George W. DeLong to reach the North Pole in 1879. The story told how DeLong's ship, the Jeanette, was trapped in an ice pack. Only a handful of men survived, enduring horrendous conditions for nearly two years. On February 25th, after six months in the ice, the Jeanette's position was 74 degrees 11 minutes north. We were still drifting, waiting for the thaw to free us. March 5th, first glimpse of sunshine. The following two shows were adaptations of Tarkenton's 17 and Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, which aired last night. Orson Welles wants a spook show, something appropriate for Halloween. He's decided to dust off H.G. Wells's 40-year-old science fiction fantasy, The War of the Worlds. Koch is worried. The narrative tone is hopelessly dated, but he has his assignment. Orson has given him some general guidelines. He wants the story to be told in a series of news bulletins with cutaways to first-person narrative. This won't be any cutting job, though. Koch will have to write the entire story over as a modern tale. He's only got six days to do it. On his way home, he stops to pick up a roadmap. It's now Tuesday the 25th. We're back at Howard Koch's New York apartment. He's opening the map. Koch closes his eyes and drops his pencil. It's landed in a village called Grover's Mill in New Jersey. This will be where the Martians land. Next, he's telephoning John Houseman direct. He needs some help. Houseman agrees to come over and work on the script with him. It's now 2 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday the 26th. Houseman has finally arrived. Howard Koch is in better spirits. He's starting to have fun with the script, laying waste to the entire state of New Jersey. He's especially enjoying getting to destroy CBS. Houseman and Koch will work through the night and all through the day until Wednesday at dusk. Orson Welles is busy rehearsing a Broadway play, Danton's Death, and is unavailable. On Thursday, the rest of the cast gets their first rehearsal, led by Wells' associate, Paul Stewart. Everyone felt it was a flop. They played too dull, 
and needed more spark. Houseman and Koch got together and plunged in again. They worked all night, spicing it with circumstantial illusions and authentic detail. Eventually, they ran out of time. On Friday evening, the script was in the hands of the CBS censor and Orson himself. The only censor requests were to change the Hotel Biltmore to a fictional meridian room of the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, and to change any CBS references to a generic broadcast building. Sunday, October 30th, the afternoon of the broadcast. Orson Welles has finally made an appearance at rehearsal, taking over for Paul Stewart, beginning to edit the broadcast script into one of his style of elocution. A strange fever is taking over the studio. The first to feel it are the actors. They know they're about to attempt something never before done. Frank Reddick, who will play the soon-to-be-incinerated newsman Carl Phillips, is studying the transcriptions of Herb Morrison's Hindenburg disaster. He wants to capture the authenticity of Morrison's voice. Wells is putting longer cutaways back into the script. He wants the elongated tension of dance music scenes to force the audience to wonder what's happening. He feels the tedium of the first portion of the show will add to the believability of the later portions. Men will travel large distances. Cabinet meetings will be held. Savage battles will be fought in the air and on land. They are ready. It's now 8 p.m. Wells has mounted the podium, assuming the stance of both director and star. It's time to go on the air. Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. 
On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. In order to understand why the War of the Worlds had the effect it did, one must understand what the network radio landscape was that evening. Running opposite of the Mercury Theater on NBC Red was one of radio's most popular shows, The Chase and Sanborn Hour. The show was hosted by Don Amici and featured starring musical numbers from Nelson Eddy, along with Dorothy L'Amour, and comedy from one of the most popular entertainers of the era, Edgar Bergen, with his ventriloquist dummy, Charlie McCarthy. On that evening, the guest was English actress Madeline Carroll, who that previous summer had starred opposite Henry Fonda in Blockade. Many listeners missed the opening introductions of the Mercury Theater, identifying the show as an adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, because they were too busy listening to Nelson Eddy's opening music number on the Chase and Sanborn Hour. In fact, many still missed the back-and-forth bulletins, but opposite the Chase and Sanborn Hour's commercial and guest drama scene, was the portion of the War of the Worlds after the Martians landed and the capsule was finally opened. This was when many in America tuned their dial to CBS. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lords are turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. 
I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That, that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C., the office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Imagine that you had tuned into this broadcast directly at this moment. For the previous 10 minutes, I've been giving you the play-by-play -play of Howard Koch's week. That previous Monday, on the 24th, Adolf Hitler sent his foreign minister to Poland to demand Poland capitulate and give the free city of Danzig back to Germany. On Tuesday the 25th, the Chinese city of Hankou fell to the Japanese. On Thursday the 27th, the Nazis began arresting Jews with Polish citizenship with the intention of deporting them back to Poland. The next day, some 12,000 Polish Jews were deported from Germany. Many of the expelled Jews were denied entry into Poland on the basis of the country's new denaturalization law. Some went back to Germany, and about 5,500 
wound up staying in disused states and other temporary shelters on the border with nowhere else to go. That same day, five acres of the shopping and hotel district in Marseille burned to the ground. Almost a hundred perished in the blaze. And on Saturday, October 29th, all opposition parties were banned in Romania. It wasn't so much that our American relatives of 80 years ago were gullible. Americans on October 30th, 1938 were on high alert. War was just around the corner. Although many in America knew Orson Welles' voice, after all, they'd been listening to him regularly for three years. The believability of the production, the timing of the people switching dials, and the state of the world created a perfect storm. Now the smoke's spreading faster, it's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue, a uh, hundred yards away, it's, it's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. the 40-minute mark of the broadcast, pandemonium had broken out in CBS's Madison Avenue studios. At this intermission point, listeners were finally cued in that this was the dramatization spearheaded by Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater. They had been deceived. At the end of the play, the Martians were defeated, though not by man's hands, but by the diseases of the Earth's atmosphere. When the final curtain closed, Welles took to the air. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, 
That was no Martian. It's Halloween. The night the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations... But America didn't think this was funny. The next morning, in front of reporters, news cameras, and radio microphones, Orson Welles issued an explanation and public apology while fielding questions. You want me to speak now? I'm sorry. Of course, we are deeply shocked and deeply regretful about the results of uh, last night's broadcast. The date of the broadcast was 1939, and it seemed, came rather as a great surprise to us that a story by an H.G. Wells' classic fantasy, the original for so many succeeding comic strips and adventure stories and novels about a mythical invasion by monsters from the planet Mars should have had so profound an effect upon radio listeners seemed to us to be clearly in the realm of the fairy tale. Deeply regretful that this is not so. Wells was publicly remorseful. But just one month later, the Mercury Theater of the Air drew to a close. Not because it was canceled. Because, thanks to their ruse, they had found the sponsor. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother... That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. The makers of Campbell's Soups present The Campbell Playhouse, Orson Welles' producer. Good evening, everyone. This is Edwin C. Hill, and I bring you exciting news. Tonight, Orson Welles takes over the direction of the Campbell Playhouse and offers you as his first production, America's bestseller, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, with a great star, Margaret Sullivan. Exciting news On December 2nd, 1938, the once-famed Hollywood Hotel, which was sponsored by Campbell's Soups, went off the air. Campbell's immediately signed the Mercury Theater to run a Campbell Playhouse. It premiered one week later on CBS Friday, December 9th, with a rendition of Miss Daphne du Maurier's thriller, Rebecca. The entire Mercury Theater production would remain, with added big-name stars to play opposite of Wells. And I have the very great pleasure presenting him now, Mr. Austin Wells. Thank you, Mr. Hill. It's a great big chance for me and a great big challenge. 
My faith in radio and the makers of Campbell Soups have enough confidence in me to give me the direction of the Campbell Playhouse. Let's hope nobody is mistaken. Mr. Wells, could you tell us something of your aims? Perhaps something of the kind of thing you hope to do with the Campbell Playhouse? Well, everybody likes a good story, and I think radio is just about the best storyteller there is. The Campbell Playhouse is dedicated to the radio production of good stories. Stories from everywhere, from the stage, from moving pictures, and from literature. Next week, for example, we're doing a comedy, call it a day, and then... And then... Campbell's annual Christmas Just two weeks after this production, in time for Christmas, Wells starred as the one and only Ebenezer Scrooge in a classic version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more and to Tiny Tim who did not die. He was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and of all of us. And so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. In just 18 months' time, Orson Welles had gone from a heralded relatively unknown voice actor to the biggest dramatic star in America. So, what was his Christmas present in 1938? What do you think of Hollywood, Orson? I'm not at all against Hollywood. It's a, uh, I think, a remarkable community with a great history and a very entertaining place to work in. The obvious things against it are so obvious, there's really no need to list them over again. Anything you can say about Hollywood is true, good and bad. There's no extreme statement that doesn't apply, I think. The success of the Mercury Theater, both on Broadway and on radio, brought Wells numerous offers from Hollywood, right at the end of its golden age. By 1939, they became too much for him to ignore. I had a terrible experience. The first dinner party I went to was the first night I arrived in Hollywood. It's when I ran out of luck for the rest of my life, really, because I made a bargain with God, which is something which is a sin to do, and certainly a mistake, because somebody at the dinner table, in those days, the ladies used to leave the table and leave the gentlemen to their port in Hollywood. This is hard to believe, but in Sam Goldwyn's and Jack Warner's and houses like that, they really observed these fine old English traditions. The ladies had left and the gentlemen were passing the port around, and somebody said, well, here's Orson Welles come from the theater in New York, and he's a famous storyteller. And everybody looked eager. And some people got up and sat closer, and a few drinks were finished. Said that I had heard a funny joke that morning in the steam bath. So I thought, well, I'll tell the funny joke. And I got into it. And when I was about halfway into the story, I realized that I didn't remember the end of it. <laughs> Yes. So I began to start to invent what might be the end of it. And this only made more eager expressions from everyone because they were sure it was just getting to the thing that would be unendurably funny. <laughs> and I said to God, between gasps, if you will get me out of this, I'll never ask for anything again. <laughs> and at that moment, the chandelier fell down on the table. There was an earthquake. Don't ask anything here tonight. No. We're sitting here. On August 21st, 1939, Wells signed a 63-page contract with RKO Radio Pictures. To this day, 
it is perhaps considered the greatest contract ever offered to a filmmaker. Wells was contracted to write, produce, direct, and perform in two motion pictures. He was given full creative control and the right to each film's final cut. He was 24 years old. Now, when you made this film, you were only 25, weren't you? I mean, everybody knows that you had the most astonishing contract that Hollywood has ever provided. Yes. Ever, ever. Not, not financially speaking, in terms of authority and yes. rights. Financially, it wasn't extraordinary in any way at all. It was extraordinary in the control it gave me over my own material. You had total control. Total control, so much so that the rushes, I perhaps should explain this, are the pieces of film that are shown at the end of the day's work are always checked by everybody in the studio, department heads and the bankers and uh, distributors and everything, long before there's a rough cut. But according to the terms of my contract, the rushes couldn't be seen by anyone. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the film couldn't be seen until it was ready for release. I got that good a contract because I didn't really want to make a film. And you know, when you don't really want to go out to Hollywood, or at least this was true in the old days, or the golden days of Hollywood, when you honestly didn't want to go, then the deals got better and better. In my case, I didn't want money. I wanted authority. So I asked the impossible, hoping to be left alone. And at the end of a year's negotiations, I got it. Simply right. because there was no real vocation there. My love for films began only when we started working. Over the course of the next year, Wells continued to commute to New York for Campbell Playhouse broadcasts until production of the show was moved to Hollywood. TWA actually gave Wells a special award for being their best customer of 1939 with a combined mileage of 311,425. He flew coast to coast over 100 times. He'd review the Campbell Playhouse scripts along the way. In the meantime, RKO rejected Wells' first two proposals for films before agreeing to his third, Citizen Kane. Uh, when you read about Citizen Kane, a lot of the things you read suggest that it was a very big social document, a massive attack on big American institutions of the day. Now, I've always seen it rather as a story, to be honest. Naturally, any story has got its implications, but I've seen it as a story. I'd like to know what your intentions were. Did you mean it as a social document or as a story? I must confess to having to... I must answer this in a way that I loathe. I must admit that it was intended consciously as a sort of social document, as an attack on the acquisitive society, and indeed on acquisition in general. But I didn't think that up and then try to find a story to match the idea. Of course, I think the storyteller's first duty is always to the story. What I'd like to know is where did you get the confidence from to make ignorance. a thing with such... Ignorance, sheer ignorance, you know, there's no confidence to equal it. It's only when you know something about a profession I think that you're timid or careful. Or... How did this ignorance show itself? I thought you could do anything with a camera that the eye could do or the imagination could do. And if you come up from the bottom in the film business, you're taught all the things that the cameraman doesn't want to attempt for fear he will be criticized for having failed. And in this case, I had a cameraman who didn't care if he was criticized if he failed. And I didn't know that there were things you couldn't do. So I, anything I could think up in my dreams, I attempted to photograph. You got away with enormous technical advances, didn't you? Simply by not knowing that they were impossible, or theoretically impossible. And of course, again, I had a great advantage, not only in the real genius of my cameraman, but in the fact that he, like all great men, I think, who are masters of a craft, told me right at the outset that there was nothing about camera work that I couldn't learn in half a day, that any intelligent person couldn't learn in half a day. And he was right. 
It's true of an awful lot of things. Of all, uh, you know, of every, of every of, you know, the, the great mystery that requires 20 years uh, doesn't exist in any field, and certainly not in the camera. Now, quiet, everybody. Quiet, everybody. Mr. Wells is about to rehearse. You have the first line, Miss Wentworth. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Let me go. Don't touch me. You have the hands of a devil. Great. For such talk, I could have you burned at the stake. I am the law. Yes, the law that drives my people out of France. You deserve it. You are thieves and swindlers. You are lazy and you live by magic tricks and sorcery. But you don't know the gypsies. I don't want to know them. I want to wipe them out with fire and sword. Every one of them. How, how was that, Orson? Just grown once, Jack. Oh, oh, I thought twice. Now, at this point, King Louis XI of France enters the scene. Esmeralda speaks. Oh, thank heaven. The king approaches. Maybe he will listen to me. You will be heard. I will help you, my child. Your Majesty. But you must give me a good reason. They say you are a lot of thieves. Oh, no, Your Majesty. Whenever we steal, it is because we are hungry. Help us, Sire. Please help us. I will help you. You and your people will suffer no longer. <laughs> go, go back to your, go back to your people, my child, and tell them that their king will see that they have food and shelter, and that in the future they shall be unmolested. <laughs> For this, I needed a teacher. <laughs> now, look, Orson, I don't know what's wrong, but I don't feel those groans. Maybe I ain't breathing right. Jack, don't say ain't. It's bad English. Well, for heaven's sake, you said it. That was in a telegram. Oh, well, Miss Wentworth, take a wire to Mr. Wells. <laughs> Dear Orson, I ain't breathing right. <laughs> By March of 1940, he had to give up his radio work. His last Campbell Playhouse broadcast was on March 31st. You have been listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. Our sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, have asked me to express publicly their appreciation to Orson Welles for his splendid services as the producer and star of the Playhouse, and to you, our listeners, for your interest in our broadcast and your patronage. Mr. Welles' Campbells are happy to have presented the Playhouse with you as its producer, for the past two years. The success of the Campbell Playhouse has been your success. As listeners, our sponsors have asked me to tell you how much they've enjoyed your shows and that each succeeding Sunday evening has confirmed their high regard for you as producer and star. And as sponsors, they've enjoyed, too, the happy association with you. Thank you, Ernest Chappell. I'd like to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that my sponsors are very nice sponsors indeed. Which is understating the situation. I have enjoyed the opportunity afforded me on the Campbell Playhouse as producer, dramatist, and as actor more than I can tell you. This series of broadcasts has been a genuinely happy experience for me. It's a very pleasant relationship indeed. I'd like now to thank all of those who contributed so generously of their time and talent in assisting actors with whom you are familiar by this time, fine actors like George Kalouris, our own Mercury Group, Ray Collins, Edgar Berrier, Everett Sloan, Agnes Moorhead, Frank Riddick, a lot more I just haven't time to mention. 
Besides these, the people behind the scenes about whom you know little or nothing. Don McBain, our wonderful engineer Tracy, our production man. Best in the business. Harry Esman, the wizard of the sound effects department. All the assistants to all these people. These are the Campbell Playhouse. Believe me, they're all wonderful. From then on, for the next year, he'd focus solely on Citizen Kane. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Charles C. Shaw speaking. KTSA is honored this evening by the presence in our studios of two great men. The Honorable H.G. Wells, world-famous British historian, author, and student of world affairs, and Mr. Orson Wells, the genius of stage, screen, and radio. This is the first time that Mr. H.G. Wells and Mr. Orson Wells have appeared together. In fact, they met for the first time only yesterday here in San Antonio. But this is not the first time that their names have been linked. Mr. Hitler made a good deal of sport of it, you know, and actually spoke of it in the great Munich speech. And there were floats in Nazi parades. Not much else to say. That's right. (laughs) Not much else to say. And it's supposed to show the corrupt condition and decadent state of affairs in democracies that the War of the World went over as well as it did. I think it's very nice of Mr. Welch to say that not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it. That was our impression in England. We had articles about it, and people said... Have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? Yes. <laughs> there was some excitement caused. I uh, really can't belittle the amount that was caused, but I think that they got over it very quickly, don't what you? What kind of excitement? Mr. H.G. Wells wants to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement that we extract from a uh, practical joke in which somebody puts a sheet over his head and says, Boo, I don't think anybody believes that that individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and, and rush down the hall. And that's just about what happened. That's, that's a very excellent description. You, you aren't quite serious in America yet. <laughs> you haven't got the war right under your uh, chins. And the consequences you can still uh, play on these ideas of terror and conflict. You think that's good or bad? It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it. So it ceases to be a game. And then it ceases to be a game. On October 28, 1940, Orson Welles and H.G. Wells met for the first time in San Antonio, Texas. They appeared on a panel for KTSA discussing H.G. Wells' take on Orson's War of the Worlds broadcast, as well as the upcoming Citizen Kane. It was an incredible, foreboding couple of minutes. Tell me about this film of yours that you've been producing. Uh, your producer, aren't you? Your art director, your everything. What's the film called? It's called Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, yes. Not C-A-I-N. No, K-A-N-E. And this Kane. is, of course, the kindest, oh, yes. the most gracious possible thing to do. Mr. Wells is uh, making it possible for me to do what in America is spoken of as a pluck. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he understands do this fine old American I subject. don't understand these words, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. You understand the value, however. Mr. Wells wants me to tell you that I am, have made a motion picture and he is kind enough to ask me a leading question concerning it. I am looking forward to it. <laughs> very kind, sir. It's a, it's a new sort of motion picture with a new method of presentation and a few new 
technical experiments, a few new methods of telling a picture, not only from the point of view of writing, but of showing it. If I don't misunderstand you completely, I think there'll be a lot of jolly good new noises in it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I think a few jolly good new noises are what the motion pictures could well afford these days. I hope you're right, and I hope there are some jolly good new noises. I think of nothing more desirable in motion picture. I'm all for some jolly good new noises. And so, we've arrived back at the Palace Theater in New York City on West 47th Street and Broadway on May 1st, 1941. Citizen Kane is finally premiering. It wasn't an easy road. The film is about a megalomaniac newspaper mogul called Charles Forster Kane, played by Wells. The story is told after Kane's death, in documentary style, through the recollections of those who knew him. The storytelling method is very similar to the one first employed by Wells on the Mercury Theater. Charles Foster Kane bore a striking resemblance to newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. It created a big problem for Wells. There was indeed a very definite effort to stop the film during shooting by those elements in the studio who were attempting to seize power because in those days, studio politics, particularly RKO and indeed many of the big studios in Hollywood, were very much like Central American republics. And there were revolutions and counter-revolutions and every sort of palace intrigue, and there was a big effort to overthrow the then head of the studio, who was taken to be out of his mind because he'd given me this contract, which made the making of these films possible. Mm. And stopping me or proving my incompetence would have won their case. In March of 1941, Orson was directing a Broadway version of Richard Wright's Native Son. The play received positive reviews, but Hearst's own papers used the opportunity to attack Wells, calling him a communist. Years later, in 1960, Wells sat down with BBC's Hugh Weldon for their Monitor program. He spoke of the struggles he found in making Kane and later films. You've been denied the cutting room before. Several I mean, just, times, just yes, recently, on, on, on a touch of evil. Yes, that's happened really quite often to the individual filmmakers. I'm not saying uh, it isn't a qualitative thing, it's a style. And there's a certain kind of filmmaker who really wants to make the film entirely on his own. And that sort of fellow is the sworn enemy of the system. So oh, the system. And, yeah. and the system is at great pains to denigrate such a person. Not only myself, but many people like myself. And that's happened in Russia as well as in America. It's happened in England. It's, it happens everywhere in varying degrees. Seeing that this sort of thing happens... Well, they rightly regard the artist as the enemy of their profession. I have heard it suggested that Citizen Kane is in some sort of sense autobiographical. The notion that Kane himself is some sort of version of myself, I'd really fail to recognize. Maybe out of blindness, but it seems to me that Kane is a uh, everything that I'm not, good and bad. <laughs> Citizen Kane premiered in Chicago on May 6th and in Los Angeles on May 8th. The Chicago premiere Wells attended was nowhere near capacity. It did well in cities in larger towns, but fared poorly in more remote areas. RKO had problems getting exhibitors to show the film. For example, one chain controlling more than 500 theaters got Wells' film as part of a package but refused to play it, reportedly out of fear of Hearst. Hearst's disruption of the film release damaged its box office performance and, as a result, it lost $160,000 during its initial run. 
Though the film did receive nine nominations for the 1941 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Musical Score, and Best Sound Recording. It was widely considered to be a shoo-in to win most of the awards, but it won only one for Best Screenplay, shared by Wells and Herman J. Mankiewicz. But I do feel that a man like Kane is very close to farce and very close to parody, very close to burlesque. And that's why I tried every sort of thing, from sentimental tricks to an attempt at genuine humanity, to keep him always counterbalanced. But of course, anybody who could build a place of that kind, yes, you know, is very close to uh, low comedy. Of course he is, Stand by. We'll be on the air in 15 seconds, Mr. Wells. Yes, I know. Stand by, everybody. Starlight, star bright, first star I see, and I wish 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 he had planned on scaling back his radio work slightly to give himself time to recover. The new show was 30 minutes long instead of 60, and his guest appearances throughout the autumn were limited to one, a dedication of CBS's new 50,000-watt transmitter in New York on October 18th. When Wells joked earlier that his first night in Hollywood was the moment he peaked, perhaps it wasn't totally untrue. Though, that might have less to do with Orson Welles and more to do with his place being paramount during a changing and challenging period in history. 1941 had been an exhausting year. It was the culmination of a decade of hard work. From the moment he stepped foot on stage at the Gate Theater in Dublin, Ireland on October 13, 1931, he had essentially worked without much of a break, always with an eye on improving his craft, his connections, and his career. He'd earned a much-deserved mini-break for the holiday season. <laughs> We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. On December 7, 1941, the war that had been raging in Europe and Asia for years finally came to the United States. That evening, for the first time, Orson Welles collaborated with writer, producer, and director Norman Corwin for a play entitled Between Americans. It aired on CBS's The Screen Guild Theater. And now, Oscar Bradley's music introduces Orson Welles, who will talk Between Americans. This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. 
This happens to include you, listener. Whatever your name may be. As a matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Today, particularly, people are thinking about their country pretty hard. Some of them for the first time in their lives. People are wondering where we're headed. Men are being called on to get ready to defend America. A lot of them are thinking in terms of what is there to defend. Well, now, America means a lot of things to a lot of people. Most of them are solid patriots, only they don't know it. They don't have to wear a red and white and blue button in their lapels to prove it. They don't have to agree with or even listen to people like this. My fellow citizens, in this great state of Flavin Pottero, we can pick the dog squirtle your taxes. Our great country is cribbly bolted up and can waggle tablewick. And you're like an got a good hunch most people prefer the quiet kind of speaker, like the fellow who got up on a platform in a Pennsylvania town one day and said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. That was the Gettysburg Address he was referring to. As a matter of fact, he didn't get such good reviews the next morning. It seemed that Orson Welles wasn't the only American used to getting bad reviews. Eight days later, on December 15th, it was the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Bill of Rights. That evening, Norman Corwin wrote, produced, and directed a play called We Hold These Truths. It was simultaneously broadcast on all four major radio networks. There were roughly 150 million Americans that night in 1941. 60 million tuned in. Do you think 55 representatives of the American people sat in a hall in New York City in a drafty hall and made up articles of freedom? Do you think the congressmen from 13 states made up those freedoms out of their own heads, debated there, deliberated there without assistance, all by themselves, from their own experience? Oh, no. They had much help from many nameless and unknown from dust in quiet places, from broken bones deep in the earth, deep in forgotten earth, mixed with the empty clay, from bleeding mouths, burnt flesh, cropped ears, from numberless and nameless agonies. The delegates from dungeons, they were there. I said that men were born equal. That is all I said. The delegates from ashes, at the bottoms of the states, they were there. The king did not approve the gallows delegate, whose corpses lifted gently in the breeze. They too. The exiled wanderers, the Christians killed for being Christians, Jews for being Jews, the Quakers. Hanged in Boston town, they made a quorum also. Prince, we are prince. The murdered men, the lopped off hands, the shattered limbs, the red welts where the whiplash bit into the back. Must you know what they said? Must you know how they argued? Must you be told the evidence? The silent testimony of the raised, 
must it be told verbatim. Listen then. That was an argument for an amendment. That was a speech in favor of an article of freedom. That praised the passage of a Bill of Rights. How much of all this must be told to be believed? Must it be drawn on diagrams? X marks the spot where decency was last observed. The dotted line shows how the victim staggers. The arrow points to blood. The headsman, he was there in Federal Hall. The man who turned the ratchets on the rack. He sat in the assembly too. Nero was there. Caligula, King Philip, Hockemada, Cotton Mather, all the tyrants and the martyrs who had gone before. That quietly, unseen among the representatives, read from their memoirs, expert testimonies, found their ways into the records and between the lines all the long and bloody history of fanaticism, murder in the name of God, torture in the name of love, crucifixion in the name of safety to the crown. My God, my God. The Congress wrote a ten-part epic of amendment. But 1941 didn't end on a totally dour note for Orson Welles. On December 29th, his Lady Esther show featured a play titled There Are Frenchmen and Frenchmen by Richard Connell, adapted for radio by Welles' Mercury Theater friend Joseph Cotton. The play featured Cotton, Welles, radio actress Lorene Tuttle, and Rita Hayworth. My real job is physical education. First you must see our new golf course. What's your handicap, Musu? Uh, timidity. Uh, cracking smart already, eh? It was the first time the two had met. Play tennis? I have never touched a mallet. Rod? Uh, no. Row? No, neither. Swim? They fell, instantly in love. No. Run? No. Box? Fence? Wrestle? None of them. Stop shaking your head. What do you do? I read. Haven't you they would be married on September 7th, 1943. It was a forecast of things to come. I don't know what this means, or even if it has meaning, but I can't resist mention of the fact that this much can be revealed concerning the appearance of tonight's atom bomb. It will be decorated with a photograph, a sizable likeness, of a young lady named Rita Hayward. Not long ago, I watched quite another sort of young lady paint her lips with something called over-the-counter the atom lipstick, a case of the cosmetic being fashioned according to the popular conceptions of the original war engine. I'm sure you won't need to be told that Miss Hayworth is not one to use such a thing or to hold it as anything less than a very hideous conceit. Her faith is not on the atom bomb then by her own choosing, but by election of the flyers who will drop the bomb and who are clearly for business according to their tastes. As regards selection, I find their taste beyond reproach, but the bomb dropping itself had better be worthy of the accompanying photograph. Is this 
Faustus claimed of Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless tower of civilian. Well, I want a better toast, a better boast for Rebecca. I want my daughter to be able to tell her daughter that grandmother's picture was on the last atom bomb ever to explode. Speaking of forecasts. This is Hollywood and CBS presenting forecast number four. Herbert Marshall directed by Alfred Hitchcock in the first program of a proposed new series entitled Suspense. Tonight's forecast program, ladies and gentlemen, represents the ideal form of collaboration. Mr. Alfred Hitchcock, brilliant English director of such outstanding motion pictures as The 39 Steps, Rebecca and foreign correspondent was eager to create a very special type of radio drama, the suspense story. As narrator and star for his production, he thought at once of the distinguished actor with whom he had been associated in countless British film successes, Herbert Marshall. Next time on Breaking Walls, we spotlight a summer replacement series. It ran for two seasons in 1940 and 41, ushered in an era of pilots for public listening, and helped give rise to the most popular thriller series in the history of American radio. The reading material used in today's episode was Citizen Wells, a biography of Orson Welles by Frank Brady. This is Orson Welles by Wells and Peter Bogdanovich. The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, and Discovering Orson Welles by Jonathan Rosenbaum. Other materials included wellsnet.com, an incredible comprehensive website on Orson Welles' career, and Orson Welles on the Air 1938 through 46 at orsonwells.indiana.edu. It's a tremendous collaborative project of the Indiana University Libraries and the Indiana University Media Digitization and Preservation Initiative, with funding from the National Recording Preservation Foundation on the recommendation of the Radio Preservation Task Force, National Recording Preservation Board of the Library of Congress. I found it to be incredibly serendipitous that I began this podcast project with so little detailed knowledge of Wells' career, only to find that Orson Welles on the Air had just come into existence. I would absolutely recommend checking that site out at orsonwells.indiana.edu and also wellsnet.com fantastic resources. And the Radio Preservation Task Force also has a great Facebook group headed by Josh Shepard. Selected music featured in today's episode was New York City Blues by Peggy Lee, The Colorado Trail by Matthias Gohl, Molly Mason, Jay Unger, Andy Stein, and Ellie McCullough, Putting on the Ritz by Judy Garland, I'll See You in My Dreams by Jan Garber, Fly Me to the Moon by Julie London, The Look of Love by Nelson Riddle, and Manhattan Serenade by Richard Alden and his orchestra. Selected interviews in this episode were Orson Welles with Dick Cavett, with Johnny Carson, and with Hugh Weldon. 
Agnes Moorhead. I was one of the founders of the Mercury Theater. Joe Cotman, Orson Welles, and mm-hmm. I founded the Mercury Theater. And Alan Reed. I was on one of the phones at CBS when Orson Welles had his War of the Worlds thing, and everybody was at a phone. We're with Radio Hall of Fame member Chuck Shaden, who interviewed over 200 members of the radio community during his 39-year career. Chuck's interviews can be streamed for free at speakingofradio.com. Thank you, Chuck. William Robeson. Unheard of in those days. Unheard of today. What television producer gives a damn about sound? Was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio in January of 1976. And Kenny Delmar. And it was shocking to hear what they said to us and how they yelled at us and cursed at us. Was with John Dunning in 1983. Those interviews can be found at the Old Time Radio Researchers Group at otrrlibrary.org. William Hers. But I don't know whether we're going to drive. Where were you going to drive to get away from the Martians? Was with Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin in 2013 for their program on the Yesterday USA Radio Network, which you can visit at yesterdayusa.com. Thank you again, you three, for all of your combined support. I appreciate it so much. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, 12 Chimes It's Midnight, and the Fireside Mystery Theater. All three podcasts can be easily found on iTunes. Morals is based in the Twin Cities. Amy Pavi's 12 Chimes is out of San Francisco, and Fireside is right here in New York City. Be sure to come check out the Fireside Mystery Theater's new time audio dramas live at the Slipper Room at 167 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side in the last Sunday of each month. They'll be wrapping up their latest season at the end of this month in May. So for more information about their next show, check out their website at firesidemysterytheater.com or their Facebook page. I'd also like to extend a thank you and a hello to the Front Porch People and their network of podcasts. For more information on them, please go to thefrontporchpeople.com. Okay, so, as I mentioned earlier, Breaking Walls episode number 80 will be out on June 1st, 2018. It'll spotlight Forecast, an on-air audition program on CBS which had two runs as a summer replacement series in 1940 and 1941. It gave rise to Suspense, Duffy's Tavern, and Hopalong Cassidy. But that won't be the next time you hear my voice. Fifteenth, two 2018, Philip Marlowe comes back to life with a debut episode of a six-part audio drama miniseries called A Man Named Marlowe. Raymond Chandler's sardonic, case-hardened private detective returns to the airwaves in a way that you've never heard him before. It's a story with a gorgeous, empowered woman, heinous crimes, backroom deals, gruesome murders, hundreds of thousands of dollars of gold, and two long-dead ghosts that teach us heroes can live forever. All set in 1935 Los Angeles at the height of the Great Depression and one year before the big sleep. You'll hear how Marlowe became the Marlowe the entire world of detective fiction has come to know. A Man Named Marlowe will be available in the same feed you get breaking walls, which means you can subscribe to A Man Named Marlowe the same way you subscribe to Breaking Walls by searching for Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts or at thewallbreakers.com. So until that time, 
My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 79. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.